Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is Jim Tankersley, a tax and economics reporter for the New York Times, where he writes about the state of America's middle class and the decline of economic opportunity. Previously, Jim was the policy and politics editor at Vox and economic policy correspondent for the Washington Post. He's the author of the recently released book, The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Jim, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to start by just reading uh, a couple sentences uh, from the book. And as I always say, the listeners love when I read. So I love I love delivering on that. Uh, here's what you write. Nearly every serious study, regardless of methodology, confirms a devastating story about the middle class since the 1970s, which is to say they all show the American economy delivering far less for middle class workers than it used to and far less than those works had grown to expect in the years after World War II. Working class Americans haven't seen their earnings grow like they used to, and they haven't seen them grow in proportion with the more than doubling of the U.S. economy. All right, so let's 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 start there. Why should I compare how workers have done since the 70s to those initial, what some people call golden era or golden age decades of the 19th? 50s and 60s. Why should those be some sort of baseline? They seem like a very odd period uh, in American history, coming right after a war. So why why should why should I view, why should I view that as a golden age that should be sort of the target for us to replicate? I mean, I think you know, in uh, in no uncertain terms, I, I think that you should do it because this is America, and and we believe in the most optimistic. Uh, possibilities for ourselves. And I think that the, the evidence are cl- is clear that the time after post uh, the time after World War II is the time when our middle class boomed the most, when the largest number of people were pulled into it, when typical workers did the best. And I understand there is an argument out there that this is some sort of outlier born uh, of, of unique conditions to the war. I, in the book, I, I go through a bunch of ways why I think that's not the case. But, but even if it were, even if it were historically anomalous, it also represents what's possible and what's possible without everything going right. So I, I wouldn't even want to say that it's the high watermark that we should aspire to get back to. I actually think we could have an economy that works even better for everyone than the one that we had after World War II. It just happens to be the best example we have of, of what is sort of possible above and beyond what we have now. And more importantly, I think it's just really fundamental to how we see ourselves as a capitalist uh, economy and as as a nation, uh, a free enterprise nation. And um, the fact that we have this example of a time when prosperity was widely shared as the economy grew quickly and unemployment was low shows us sort of the possibilities of the type of governance that we have and the type of economy that we have um, in a way that I, I think is just seared into our national psyche and has dictated our politics for decades now. And that is important because of that. Do you worry that people will read your book and view it as an affirmative case for this sort of economic nostalgia that we see among nationalist populists? 
I think it's a, a really important um, point, Jim, uh, it, because it's something I've heard a ton um, from people as I'm out talking about the book. It's there is this nationalist populist idea that the that that era was notable in part because of, of restrictions on immigration, to which um, I, I like to point out that we actually had a huge influx of, of workers into the American labor force in that time to compete with incumbent workers, which is, I mean, theoretically, if you were a, an immigration restrictionist, one of the reasons that you think um, that immigration is bad is because you believe workers compete with existing, those new workers compete with existing workers for jobs and drive down wages. But we actually had like 20 million women enter the labor force um, in the period we're talking about right now. And that had no ill effect whatsoever on wages for incumbent male workers. So I actually think there's, there's really good evidence um, inside the numbers here as, as to why that particular argument is wrong. But from a broader point, you're absolutely right that there's a bunch of things people look at from that post-war era and say, oh, what made it great was union rates and nothing else, or industry mix and nothing else, or like you just said, marginal tax rates and nothing else. But the, the, the virtue of detailed economic research is that we can actually pull out what matters. And, and the thing obviously that I really focus on in the book is, is a thing hardly anybody talks about from those years, which is the breaking down of barriers for women of all races, for men of color, for immigrants, and the ability for them both to contribute more uh, by joining the labor force and then by, by taking higher and, and better skilled jobs and getting the education you need to, to do those jobs. Um, and we have this, this is a quantifiable effect. And, and, you know, the research that I draw on the book from Chicago and Stanford uh, shows that's like 40% of per worker GDP since 1960 comes from those forces. And it's, it is sort of the secret sauce of that era that no one ever talks about. So yeah, I, I do worry we can take the wrong lessons from, from that era and from, um, from, you know, lionizing those years. But I think we can take the right lessons as well. And that's, that's why I think this is an important message for today, because we, we have the ingredients for another boom like that sitting in the American economy right now. We have the capability to unleash workers again. And so that actually is replicable. It's not a one-off. It's not, it's not anomalous. It is a lesson grounded in data that we can apply to our own times today. Right. So that's a, that's a story of sort of um, maximizing. I feel like a Silicon Valley person when I say this. <laughs> I we're, that we're kind of maximizing <laughs> human potential, right? Yeah. So, or, or, may, or maybe I'm like a keynote speaker at some sort of conference where we're talking about max and we, and we started doing a, a better job uh, uh, of helping people sort of fulfill their potential in those decades. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think one, one way I want to put it, you know, you can put it as like, we want people yeah, to do it. That's my way. I'm sure you're Yeah, no, no, no. I like it. I can like, see you with like a headset on right now, walking around a stage. <laughs> the power of yes. This, I got the it. The power of you. Yeah, no. Um, I, I, the way I would put it is we want, you know, economically speaking, we would like people to do what they're best at. And we would like them to achieve their full potential. So um, for a really long time in this country, we did not offer uh, anything close to a comprehensive education to wide swaths of Americans, um, whether they were rural or, you know, particularly African Americans. Um, over time, we have we have created, you know, systems that provide better education. Still not perfect, still not the same as everyone's opportunities, but but just that improvement in education has allowed more and more young Americans to grow up and and do what you know they would be best at to, to contribute the most. Um, 
And then, you know, this in the same way that discrimination restricted people, you know, young black men who should have grown up to be doctors because that's what they would have been best at were instead forced to be janitors because they, they weren't allowed into medical school. Um, you know, women who, who, who did not uh, deploy their talents outside the home because society basically restricted them from doing that. And from an economic standpoint, that, that, that's a loss to a country. That's a loss in productivity. And it's like, um, to use a, a, a bro metaphor, um, you know, if you have a baseball team and, and, and you basically restrict every single person on the team to be right-handed, um, you're going to lose the potential and the and the benefits of having left-handed pitchers. And so when you start opening up the team to left-handed people um, who were previously discriminated against, the whole team works better and um, and everyone can can do more. And I think that that is sort of the story I'm telling here is that um, that human capital improvement, the sort of the fulfillment of, uh, of human potential is uh, a story that, that helps everybody and in particular helps the people who are finally allowed to do what they're best at. No, and I, I understand your point that, that we sort of let in all these people into the workforce uh, and we did just fine. You know, but, but uh, again, um, I'm sure there are going to be sort of, you know, populists saying, well, that's great and that's great that that happened. But things would have been just so much better if we hadn't let in all those immigrants and we hadn't kept keep letting. I mean, I, I suppose if I would have written this book, um, and I'm probably not capable of writing that book, but if I would have written this book, I would be, that's what I would be constantly thinking of. Oh no, that I, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm writing here is a justification for, for sort of, uh, you know, restrictionist immigration for anti-trade for a closed economy. So it was, so, other, other than pointing out that you have this sort of other, this case study of kind of how we opened up the economy and things went well, looking specifically at what ha- what's happened with um, immigration, I want to talk a little bit about trade later, but specifically with immigration, you're, are, as you look at the, at the data, you're confident that immigration has not been bad uh, for America, has not been bad for Native uh, workers uh, as sort of the nationalists. Uh, contend who and they point specifically at, at opening up the U.S. immigration in the 1960s as where it all went wrong. Yeah, I, I'm not only confident that it hasn't been bad. I'm, I'm confident that the research shows us it's been very good. Um, it's been very good at the high end. I mean, um, you know this, but but the research on immigration and its effects, positive spillover effects on entrepreneurship and innovation. Innovation being the source of the new industries the new good paying jobs, the, you know, the ways, the ways that in which we create, you know, capabilities for workers that they could not have imagined themselves, but, but to produce and, and contribute even more and be fulfilled even more. I mean, so much of that um, is a, a positive spillover story with immigrants. It, it just, that's what the research shows us. I cite a bunch of it in the book. And then on the, you know, on the, on the overall comprehensive level, uh, I just think that the, the broad, uh, immigration literature and economics, uh, as opposed to people cherry picking data or a couple of studies from one or two researchers, the broad literature review is there are really good things that come even from, you know, immigrants who do not come in with the sort of high skills uh, that, that people often use as sort of a, a split the baby kind of way of talking about immigration. Immigrants generate economic activity. They, uh, they buy things, they start businesses, uh, they do a lot positive for the economy and people 
you know, the restrictionist nativist argument always downplays those positive effects. Um, and instead, you know, pushes narratives that, you know, about wages in particular and competition that act as if the economy would be best if we had the fewest workers possible. And I think if you just like ask yourself in the counterfactual, would the American economy be much better off today if we deported 40 million randomly selected Americans? I don't, I don't think anybody would seriously argue I, that. Right? I don't, I don't, I think they would disagree with the word random. They may have a, they may, there may be 40 million they'd like to deport, but it wouldn't be random. <laughs> well, sure. But, but if you, but I mean, if you're going to start, I mean, uh, it, it would be a, it is a different argument to say the American economy is worse off because of low, because we have too many people with low skills, um, whether they are immigrants or not, uh, than to say we have an economy that is made worse off because of the presence of immigrants. I just think there's, and there's, you know, I don't really subscribe to the view that, that you could deport, um, you know, a, a large group of people and make the economy better off. I don't see any, any empirical research that's, shows that. But I also think that we are, there's a lot of research showing that we're better off because of the contributions of immigrants over the years. Are you confident that it is not only correct to say this, but I'm also giving an, but I'm also giving an accurate picture of the past 40 years of economic history. If I were to say middle-class living standards have basically gone nowhere since the late 1970s. And is that an accurate statement? No, I don't think so. I think, and I think that that's, that's, that's important. It's an important point and it's a subtle one. I think the, um, uh, everyone's living standards have, have, have gone up because of technological change in the United States. And that's an important thing to point out. Um, it, it's true, we still have massive problems economically. Uh, we, have, we have far too much poverty, far too much homelessness. Um, and we have far too many people who cannot afford the economic security that I associate with being middle class in the United States. But I think for the people in, in you know, just for medical care alone, people's uh, living standards ha have gone up. Now, I mean, obviously there have been some real challenges in, in, in particular with the opioid crisis. And I, I don't think it's true for all people that their living standards have gone up and, and you know, quality of life or expect life expectancy has gone up. Um, but I think we can both say that the middle class has had, has suffered a widespread income stagnation for much of the last four decades uh, in inflation adjusted terms, uh, or at very least, if we want to argue about deflators and, and, and other um, technical adjustments, that the incomes of the middle class have not um, kept pace with their expectations and that we are um, we, we've seen millions of people fall out of the middle class during the, the repeated economic crises of the last couple of decades, and, and that millions more who should have ascended to it have not. I mean, I think those are sort of non-controversial things, but to get there, you do have to stipulate, yeah, look, it, it's, it's better to be alive today in the middle class than it was in 1970, um, just because of, of the pace of technological change in a lot of places. I, I just think Americans sort of take that for granted. We've always expected that we're going to have improving technology and that, our, and that, you know, our lives will be better than the, the lives of the generation before us. It's, it's just that we also expect, you know, income gains and, and, and an expansion of the middle class on top of that. Do you, do you think, do you, do you think what, I think what you referred to as sort of, sort of these, these kind of technical points about how you do the measuring, do you think they're just technical because technical points, or do you think 
it's actually super, super important to understand what's happened by actually looking at what the economic data, because certainly when I, you know, when I look at the economic data, I think it's wrong to sort of lump in all, lump in the period 1970s, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s altogether. When they, when you actually saw, see very different things, you see, uh, you see kind of a weak period in the 70s and 80s. And then I think you see a stronger period since then. Yet when I when I hear this argument, it's always since the you know since the 1970s, you know wages have been uh, wages have been stagnant, and oftentimes that, that's using one inflation measure. Um, when if you certainly if you use a different inflation measure, you come up with a a pretty more ro- a, a, a far more robust number, and that's sort of pre-tax, after-tax, sort of an even better number. I think sort of like the better version of this story often gets dismissed because it is, it is a politically inconvenient story for some I mean, activist groups who want to make the case that everything's sort of you know, been wrong in this country for, for 40, 50 years. They maybe they don't like trade, uh, maybe they don't like what's been going on with taxes, maybe they don't, they don't like how, you know, how, what's been going on with business, they don't like immigration. And they, so they've, they've made sort of this singular argument that uh, this is the inflation measure you must use. And forget about sort of those ups and downs of the past 40 years. We're just going to look at what things were in the late 70s, even though those people, it's not the same group of people, and, and look at now. Do you feel that the story of stagnation is about right? Or do you think it's been overstated? I think we can tell the story of stagnation in more granular chunks that make it more nuanced, which I understand is a less sexy answer to this. And, um, uh, and so I guess I'm going to partially agree with you and, and, and partially and disagree. Um, you know, I, I, I think we have to acknowledge that the mid to late 1990s were an incredible period for the United States economy. Why, Not, why, why do we, t- why do we talk about the nineties instead of the fifties and sixties? Well, it's be- kind of weird. Well, because, because they, because I think they loom in so many people's consciousness as, um, a pretty quick blip, you know, they, they mm-hmm. last less than a decade. And then what follows them? A recession, uh, a recession basically right after George W. Bush takes office, which I, I think we can fairly attribute to President Clinton. I mean, it, it was very early on in the Bush term. So I, so I don't think you blame Bush for that. But then coming out of that, you have the, the decade of the 2000s, before the financial crisis starts, are the weakest decade for job growth. Uh, in America, uh, in sort of the history of, of modern economic statistics um, on a percentage term. And then you have the 2008 financial crisis, which is just brutal for, for household wealth in particular at the median. And then a really slow recovery under President Obama, nowhere close to the kind of recoveries people had experienced in the past, um, that only finally starts to kick off 90s level uh, uh, and not even 90s level, by the way, but like pretty good um, uh, income gains at the median in the final couple of years of, of, uh, of Obama's term, and, and then pretty good uh, income growth in the first few years of Trump's term, and then another debilitating recession hits. And so I think if you look at that story, what stands out there, it's not the brief periods of awesome. It's the Wow, long stretches of not very good punctuated by debilitating crises. And I think workers at the median and, and sort of in the broad middle class 
feel acutely the strains of that in ways that I am not sure that the people who whose 401ks or you know or, or big investment portfolios, the people in the top five percent and above, um, who have seen you know suffered some you know wealth losses up and down with the market during those recessions, I don't think they've felt anything close to the economic insecurity in that time that the typical workers have. And so uh, it, it can be true that it's politically inconvenient for um, the folks pushing uh, a, a narrative of complete and utter stagnation over this time uh, to acknowledge those periods of, of goodness. Um, it's also politically inconvenient for the people at the top who would rather just live with the with those long stretches of malaise for most workers in order to sort of keep things humming for the income gains at the top um, to concede that actually that that in income and economic insecurity is a real thing in the middle and, and has been for a long time and it's um, and so I think these are both these are both true it's a different it's a it's a complicated story but. Uh, I do think it adds up to a middle class that is neither as strong nor as secure as it could be or as it has been um, for all the stuff we've been through now. Um, and you can say that without saying, but the whole thing's been crap the, the, you know, the entire 40 years, for sure. So today, um, to get back to you know, one of your uh, core arguments, and I think what's sort of what makes uh, uh, your book you know, interesting and unique is what are the barriers that human that maximizing potential story uh, of all Americans? So what what today are sort of those key barriers, and what do you want to do about them? I think there's a I think there's a few. I mean, first off, I, I, you know, this, I like being able to talk about this part of the book a lot because to me, this is a book about the potentially transformative power of human freedom, um, and, and and so often that means just getting out of the way and letting people do, you know, just, just, you know, rev at their best. Um, and sometimes it means giving them the support to, to be able to rev at their best. And both are important. Um, I, I do think, and I, and I run through in the book that there are some regulatory barriers that still exist that, that keep people from um, starting businesses that compete with incumbents or, you know, occupational licensing barriers that keep people from being able to, to just get in and, and, and do the work that would pay them more. And I think that that's a really important uh, part of this story of what's holding people back. Um, I think there are, but there are more complicated things too. I think there's remain enormous disparities in education by race uh, in this country. And that if we can't find ways to, um, to bring up the quality of education for non-white students in America, we are just leaving human potential on the table. And it's, and, and, and we need to do more to fix that. And then I think, you know, I think that there are number one untapped source of uh, of, of great economic potential in America uh, is our, our our workforce of women, and I think that they are both criminally underinvested in. If you just look at the splits of who gets venture capital in this country, women get very very little of it compared to men. I think that is the path dependencies of Silicon Valley and of the financial system that uh, produced that, and not that is not a, a verdict on the relative merits of female entrepreneurs. And then I think that you know we we have a childcare crisis in this country, which has been exacerbated by um, this recession. And um, so long as women, um, as my colleagues have been writing this, uh, you know, in, in recent weeks in the New York Times, um, women are picking up all the wide uh, uh, share of of those burdens during this recession, and it is forcing them out of the workforce. is for, is forcing them to cut back on their hours. Um, that's that's just an economic loss. If we can find a way 
to, to, to address both the supply and demand sides of the childcare crisis and have affordable, um, available childcare for everyone in this country, I really do think we could uh, uh, just um, unleash a wave of human potential for women uh, in the economy. Those are all very mechanical things. The last thing I would be remiss, though, not to mention mm-hmm. is there is still real discrimination in the economy. There just is. There's all sorts of evidence for it. It exists in, in professions, across industries, like women and uh, of all races and men of color are just not hired, promoted, uh, retained, retrained, uh, put into top jobs at, at the same rate as white men. It is still a, a, a white man's economy. And uh, so long as that's the case, so long as discrimination persists, we are, again, leaving uh, uh, money on the table for, for all of us in the economy. Finally, do you think we will look at this period here um, of this, you know, hopefully, uh, once in a century pandemic as sort of a moment when we realize that, oh, you know, we need to get very serious about make, you know, if we're going to come out of this thing strong and vibrant, we need to be very serious about public policy, make sure we have policies that maximize you know, potential of individuals, of businesses. Uh, do you think we'll look, do you think looking back that that's what this period will be sort of a lot, end up being kind of a launching pad for the U.S. economy? Or is it, we're just going to kind of muddle through as always, as, as, as we have been? Man, I wish I knew that. I really did. I, I really, I, I, I'm worried a lot. It's going to be the, uh, it's going to be the latter, a lot more risk aversion, uh, in the economy, and that rather than trying to make you know the best of this and turn this into something, we just won't. Yeah, and I, I, I do worry about that. I mean, I, I, I am I'm an economics reporter. I'm naturally a pessimist, uh, uh, but I, I am uh, for that. But I'm an optimistic person overall, particularly about people and their. I mean, I, I've been really impressed by the ability of of people and businesses to adapt in this crisis. But there's only so much you can adapt to, um, and we definitely from a policy level, got a lot wrong that has held people back from being able to adapt. Um, I, I don't, I'm not even sure uh, uh, we'll know in five years whether that, that has been the case. I mean, it's, we could have a relatively quick GDP snapback next year once a vaccine becomes available and still not have really changed structural things about the economy and who participates in it. Um, or we could start changing those things and still have other setbacks that are, that are totally unrelated and I'm not sure we'd know, but but it would be nice if it was in the conversation. You know, I think we're also Washington right now, for example, is just so focused on how much money does it does the you know would a next stimulus bill need to have, and I think that's an interesting and important question. But that there are other really big and important questions about sort of who do you invest in and how and how do you support the right things um, that really aren't top of mind conversation. So um, I, I don't, I'm sorry that I don't have a better answer about how I think it's going to play it out. I, I, but I, I, I think it's absolutely the right question. My guest today has been Jim Tankersley. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jim, thanks for having me. 